You know, I think Wall Street and bankers on Wall Street are some of those people that everybody just loves to hate. <laughs> like, <laughs> why do you say that? I don't know. I just feel like there. I mean, there's always this idea about when you think about someone who works on Wall Street or someone who's in like the high financial sector that they must be assholes or aggressive and I mean have I you mean, ever yeah. really seen anybody have a good impression of someone I mean I, I guess you're right because usually even the media television film it's always like this sort of negative perception right they're yeah. always like that bossy money hungry kind of a person right that that very authoritative cutthroat situation in terms of working on Wall Street. Yeah. And that's that's just sort of the image that that pops into my head when I think of somebody that works on Wall Street. Yeah, it's like drug sex power. <laughs> it's huh, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Which I still have not. Like, I, I think I've seen like half an hour of that movie and then I saw no more. Yeah. So, I don't know. The, I, I guess mean, like that sort of behavior turns me off. <laughs> so, I, I, you know. Yeah. So why is it that we love to hate bankers? Because we see them as assholes. Yeah. That's just that's just our 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 view. I mean, not that they are all assholes, but I think that to be to be successful, not just bankers, right? Because there's bankers in all different, you know, you can you can have bankers outside of Wall Street, but to actually be on Wall Street, to be like an analyst, right? Or to be whatever those positions are like you you kind of you have to have a really thick skin i'd say to deal with some of the uh situations and and just the personalities of wall street yeah i mean it's a different kind of hustle it's it's interesting because this is a world that most of us do not know about most of us know the uh, shallow stuff about, right? What is Wall Street? What's the history of Wall Street? But really the inner pinnings and the inner workings, that's a select few that knows what goes on in that world. Because I mean, why would we need to know, right? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we, we probably should know because it, especially if they're handling our finances, but yeah, we just don't. We just kind of allow ourselves to be ignorant <laughs> to what goes on on wall street and and i mean not just wall street obviously wall street referring to this country but other countries right in terms of their similar financial sectors um, yeah but also like the people on wall street are not going to be managing my money because i don't have that kind of money to oh, be managed no, like it's not, I'm not, I don't mean like a, like a Madoff situation, right? That's a whole different thing. That's, that's, that's more personal finance. But when it comes to any sort of like stock or, or funds or anything like that, technically it does still affect you. It does. Yeah, that's true. It okay. does. Yeah. That makes sense. It does affect you. You just don't see it. You're not personally the one that's dealing with it, right? So yeah, your your banker deals with it, but they deal with it on your behalf. But they're dealing with the Wall Street people. Like it's you're shielded from it. So you just like you look at you get your statement and you're like, oh, okay, I did good. <laughs> you know. Um yeah. but yeah, it still does affect you. It's just that we 
we like to act like it doesn't. Yeah. Um, we don't see it because when you don't see it, 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 it's out of your mind, right? Out of sight, out of mind. It's like you, you're not thinking about it. I think what's also important in terms of talking about Wall Street and financial sector is like, who are these people, right? Who's getting these jobs? Who's working these jobs? What are the demographics? What is their day like? Just the in, inner workings of, of Wall Street. Because we really don't know. Like we just have this perception in our minds. And we always think of them as these like elite people, right? But is it really like that? Is everyone on that same wavelength? Is it like, do you need like a certain type of personality to survive on Wall Street? So to really understand how people in Wall Street work, what sort of people Wall Street attracts, we spoke to Karen Hope, who is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Minnesota. She also wrote the book, Liquidated, which is an ethnography of Wall Street and Wall Street's culture. Karen, tell us about your personal journey. How did you arrive at this point in your career? Thank you both for asking. So I decided to be a cultural anthropologist to better understand taken for granted, invisibilized and hidden cultural assumptions uh, in our world, and especially ones that had undue influence in our society. So, you know, one of the goals of an anthropologist is to understand, comprehend, unpack some of the key structures that are embedded in our society in order to foster greater understanding and social change. And so as an undergraduate, I actually majored in feminist studies. Now, I was supposed to be pre-med um, as, as the child uh, of uh, immigrant parents who want their uh, children to, to grow up to be doctors, but instead I fell in love with feminist studies. <laughs> and one of the sort of key, it's an interdiscipline, but one of the sort of key motivating factors of feminist studies is that it trains you to understand and critically analyze worlds from the standpoint of the other right, uh, from the marginalized. And not only to sort of uncover and understand suppressed worlds, but also from those perches to better understand hidden structures of power. So in many ways, it's very akin to what W.E. Du Bois talked about in terms of a double consciousness, right, that the marginalized need to both understand oft invisible codes of power in order to survive, as well as their own realities and life ways. So, you know, armed with both a feminist studies uh, undergraduate degree and wanting to understand structures of power, I sort of landed in anthropology. And um, a lot of it was the central toolkit of anthropology. One of the central toolkits of anthropology is ethnography. And the idea of ethnography is to immerse oneself in a cultural milieu, whether textual or narrative or historical or the everyday and or the everyday practices of a particular community in order to apprehend it. And what I wanted to do was sort of gain or sort of use the fine-grained skills honed in ethnography, which historically has been used to study the relatively powerless, and to use those skills to really understand and analyze the corridors of power that have often escaped scrutiny. And not only the corridors of power, but the corridors of power and the elite in the West, right, in the global North. And so that's what, in a sense, brought me as an anthropologist to the field of Wall Street. And why Wall Street? Well, you know, 
during the 1980s and 1990s, and of course I'm dating myself, um, you know, U.S. corporations were among the most powerful and influential socioeconomic institutions in the world, right? They were responsible for everything from mass employment and livelihoods to company towns to setting particular standards of how to conduct business. And during this time, Wall Street values, financial values, financial standards and measures were actually overwhelmingly coming to actually judge and shape U.S. corporations. And so in the sense, Wall Street really was sort of amassing a lot of power and influence. So if U.S. corporations were so major and Wall Street was helping to shape and influence U.S. corporations, then certainly Wall Street was the site to understand, right, to understand why we had growing socioeconomic inequality and why, you know, wealth was increasingly captured in the hands of the few. You know, I'm reminded of that show, that early 2000s show, sort of heroes, right? Save the cheerleader, save the world, right? <laughs> understand Wall Street, better understand the world. <laughs> so anyway, so that's, um, that's how I sort of came, one, to, to anthropology, but two, to actually study finance from an anthropological perspective. What a story. I just want to delve into your childhood a little bit, you know, not to get too Freudian, but your family was the only East Asian family in a small town outside of Tennessee, right? So the deep South. So do you think your overarching theme of race in your work stems from your experience as a child in that town? Yeah, so that's a great question. So yes and no. So on the one hand, you know, part and parcel of growing up in the United States, and certainly in many other places in the world, is that everyone is racialized, right? Race, racial hierarchy, stereotypes, assumptions, they shape everyone. Um, and yet historically, it's usually the non-normative the, you know, the marked, the sort of, uh, you know, people, BIPOC communities who notice the racialization, right? So for example, whiteness as a category are just as cultural, just as racialized, just as race, just as shaped, right, by cultural histories and hierarchies as blackness and Asianness. But whiteness is constructed to be the race of no race, right, to, to be acultural. And so in a sense, Many folks who are normative don't under, don't have a self-understanding of themselves as being racialized. They have a self-understanding of themselves as being unraced. So, you know, a slight tangent, but it's, it's, it's relevant in the sense that pointing out or noticing race actually becomes an uncomfortable and revelatory act that can engender backlash, especially if part of your very racialization as a normative category is to be non-racial. Right. And so, so yes, like, you know, race sort of permeated the sort of general milieu growing up in, uh, as one of the sort of only Asian Americans uh, in a small town in Tennessee. But, you know, that I think that a really sort of important point is that, you know, all Americans are racialized. It's just that some get to deny it. <laughs> But, you know, back, but back to back, back to the sort of, you know, um, original sort of that question, which I think is crucial, is that, you know, because Asian Americans are racialized in betwixt and in between, the middle child, if you will, <laughs> being in the middle, I think, can give one insight into the larger structure, into the larger racial dynamics, the larger poles, if you will, and hierarchy of blackness and whiteness against which one is racialized. So certainly, you know, the experience of being 
I'm Asian American and of being a racial middle child gives one a purview of the larger racial structures and politics. And especially if one is, you know, as many Asian Americans are, are both relatively valorized, right, in the racial hierarchy and yet also understood to be outside of the body politic. So foreignness, racialized as foreign and yet racially and yet racialized as a model minority comes in in this sort of really sort of fraught point in in American racial dynamics. But that being in that sort of friction point, I think, helped me sort of hopefully better understand the larger racial hierarchies in the U.S. When you had talked about the valorization, that's exactly what I was going to pinpoint on is the model minority. And it's interesting because when I worked as a counselor working with South Asian survivors of domestic violence, We actually talked about the model minority myth, how because the rest of the rest of America sees Asian Americans as a certain way, that when something does happen in these communities in a negative way, it's almost unbelievable. So it was really poignant that you mentioned the model minority. That's right. And not only is it a model minority myth, but, you know, part of the sort of the fiction and the strategy of creating a category of model minority is that it becomes a disciplinary model, right? So in the larger U.S. racial dynamic, being Asian American was, or the category was deployed as a disciplinary mechanism against minorities, which were constructed and framed and stereotyped as not so model, right? So it not only is a myth, it also served as a disciplinary function to drive a wedge in between um, possible coalition building, et cetera. And also sort of recognizing relative privilege and relative lack of privilege, right? Those are really sort of fraught dynamics that have to be sort of better acknowledged and engaged with. And so, but the model is not only constructed, but also contingent, right? Because there is this always sort of threat of not belonging, of a foreign threat of being outside. So yeah, you might be model, but you're about to be, you know, kicked out in two seconds, right? As we sort of see with the the ways in which foreignness really enlivens the scapegoating and the hate crimes of the COVID era. There's still a ceiling to how high you can go. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, Chani, I guess you can answer this question, which is basically when immigrant families come here and they have this idea of the immigrant experience in America, right? Or that American dream, if that's still a thing that people even, I don't know, if that's still a thing that people actually believe in. But how do they see their place in America in terms of success and reaching their goals? Like, are they aware that there's this feeling that they, you know what I mean? Are they aware of, of their place in America? So I I can just talk about from my family's perspective as an Indian American family, which is not the same as a Chinese American family or a Taiwanese American family, because even within the, even within minorities, you have so many different layers. And for me, it was always apparent that education was the highest priority because that is what makes you stand out. That is what will actually make you get a job because life is already difficult for immigrants, especially since I wasn't a first-generation, I guess, no, I was a first-generation immigrant because I came to the U.S. when I was 13. So, you know, I wasn't born here. I didn't have the luxury of a U.S. citizenship. So if I needed to get a job and if I needed to get a really good job, it's almost like 
a company would need to sponsor me. And why would a company sponsor me? If I had a good education, if I had a job that is really valued. To me, Zoe, your your sort of question is actually really important because it sort of lays bare what kinds of narratives do Americans and new Americans need to be socialized into, and what do they need to learn? Right. And many critical historians, the one that really jumps to mind is um, David Rodiger's *The Wages of Whiteness*. And in that book, he actually explores this conundrum, which is Irish Americans who themselves also experience who were not um, framed as white, right? They were not quite white, so they sort of hadn't gained sort of the status of whiteness historically in the 19th century. Why didn't they actually have more solidarity with African Americans? That was sort of his the question that he was trying to answer in his book. And what he came to see that many other historians have also corroborated with this and, and demonstrated this as well, what he came to see is that for the for the Irish upward mobility in terms of the various hierarchies that they had to navigate being new immigrants uh, in the U.S., upward mobility was contingent upon being able to claim whiteness because claiming Irishness wasn't getting them uh, uh, that far, right? And claiming whiteness, right, would sort of lead them up the hierarchy. But what was whiteness dependent upon? Whiteness, as it was understood and defined in the U.S. at that time, was being not black, so anti-blackness enervated what constitutes whiteness. Not only was whiteness sort of understood to be sort of anti-black, but that to claim whiteness, one actually, a group actually had to distance themselves from black folks in terms of location, jobs, etc. And that was actually the sort of fulcrum upon which many groups gained access to whiteness was to distance oneself from blackness. And part of the reason why that was so structurally foundational in the U.S., is because blackness came to be constructed as being potentially property, right? So not being black and claiming whiteness was a pinnacle achievement. Same can be said for um, Italians as well. Right. So the structure really has to be, you know, um, critiqued, not just sort of the individual problems, right, of every category. People learn this, right? They're socialized into it as, you know, unfortunate strategies for, for survival that then ends up reproducing anti-Blackness in, in the larger society. So just moving to your book, Liquidated, which is essentially one of the most important ethnographic pieces that students who are studying anthropology and sociology read. For those that don't know, an ethnography is a descriptive study of a particular society and or culture. In Karen's case, she did deep research into the culture and inner workings of Wall Street. Her study discusses Wall Street in terms of how the culture correlates and corresponds to how the financial sector functions. And this came out at such a pivotal time, 2009. So just after the recession and when the economy was in chaos. So why do you think your book got the attention that it did? Was it purely because of the timing or was it more? Wow, that's a, that's a, you know, hopefully it's also, you know, a, a good, well-researched, well-written book. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so no, 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 thank you, Tony. That's a great question. So Liquidated made its debut in 2009, you know, at the height of the global financial crisis that started in 2008. So it came out at a time when not only scholars and students, but also everyday observers really wanted to understand how Wall Street helped to drive our uh, larger social economy off a cliff. 
And why Wall Street, who also populates the Treasury Department, have relationships with the Federal Reserve, the Washington Wall Street revolving door, the Wall Street Washington consensus, etc. Why Wall Street was also entrusted to save and to make better, right, to solve the very economy in which it wrecked. Right. So, you know, this is quite a conundrum here is how did this sort of, you know, group of folks, you know, smash the economy and then be in charge uh, for um, its saving? Now, you know, unfortunately, I, I would argue that, you know, so 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 part of Wall Street's capture ability uh, to do this is that a large part of the U.S. social safety net is actually um, has been outsourced to Wall Street. Right. So in a sense, Wall Street has our larger economy by the by the guts here, precisely because our, the safety net um, of most Americans, at least middle class and upper middle class Americans, have been outsourced to Wall Street. Now, liquidated actually tries to make sense of a culture of crisis. What is it about? And, and of course, all the research of liquidated was done before this massive crisis hit. But the sort of key point of liquidated is to try to understand how Wall Street's institutional institutional culture actually helps to produce crises. <laughs> so it was sort of right on point in the sense of that was its, its entire subject matter. How does sort of when Wall Street and when financial values really take over corporate value, what are the larger socioeconomic ramifications? And basically liquidated it attempts to explore the ways in which short-termism, the uh, focus on uh, short-term stock price and shareholder value primacy really serves to engender the kind of mindset of take as much that you can now and mortgage the future. In fact, there's a Wall Street saying called IBGYBG, I'll be gone, you'll be gone. And that was the mindset through which uh, many Wall Street institutions actually approach larger corporate America. So it's not surprising that larger corporate America would uh, engage in short-term behavior. It's not surprising they, that they would sort of engage in constant mergers and acquisitions and downsizing and restructuring in ways that actually undermine their stability and productivity just to uh, please Wall Street. So part of Liquidated's exploration is how does uh, Wall Street's culture of short-termism, its particular uh, bonus and compensation structure, the ways in which it understands and practices markets actually produce, culturally produce crises. And so uh, I, I think that's the, one of the reasons why it served as a sort of, served as an explanatory, it, it served an explanatory gap, right? It, it addressed an explanatory gap, I should and it's so fascinating because you took time off during grad school to work as an analyst, right? And so I'm just very curious, what was your experience like and how did it affect your worldview? And how was it being the other in that sector? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. So, you know, I mean, what probably saved my sanity was that, you know, I actually had no desire to uh, make it on Wall Street or belong on Wall Street. My, you know, my, the sort of, the, what let what lit the fire under my belly was actually to understand Wall Street, was to be an ethnographer. And, you know, I could have sort of judge Wall Street from the outside or, you know, or to sort of make proclamations of what it, of what Wall Street sort of, how it came to do what it did from the standpoint of an outsider, but I really wanted to understand the native's point of view. And so for me, um, working on Wall Street 
really was part of an anthropological curiosity, but was also part of a, a way in which I could help make sense of a really sort of, you know, nuanced and complicated world that was oft invisible, that was often taken for granted. And so the sort of largest stress for me in that sense was, am I, and I had no desire to learn finance, um, but, you know, I put myself in a situation where I had to learn it really quickly in order to be able to talk to people, in order to be able to understand it, in order to be able to analyze it so that I could sort of see, well, how is it that these folks have been able to do what they do? How do they come to be socialized into these models and practices? How do these these social values come to be understood to be a social economic good? How do they justify it? And to understand that really necessitated embodying and occupying the the native's point of view. So that was the, you know, so that was the impetus, not so much like can I belong to Wall Street? But having said that, how I sort of functioned as an other is actually a really interesting question. Because on the one hand, like most Wall Street young recruits, I, you know, uh, di- graduating from uh, Stanford University and then from Princeton University, I had a lot of intersections with folks on Wall Street. At the same time, the sort of my sort of larger interest in socioeconomic justice was not something that most Wall Street folks were interested in, even though. What could be interesting for you all is that many Wall Street folks had uh, what I would think of as as tortured, um, but had sort of a tortured ethos whereby they came to justify their practices as having a larger socioeconomic good. And it, it, it was not that far off from the greed is good mantra, right? By doing all these terrible, selfish things, I end up doing good in the world, um, which I think is really important to be critiqued. <laughs> and But I would also say that part of being you know, an Asian American and woman of color is that I, I mobilize both insiderness and outsiderness. And, and, and one could argue that in a sense, that's quite anthropological, right? Because part of the tools of anthropology is to play with that tension between inside and outside. You're an outsider looking in, and you're also an insider examining and sort of taking perspectives from the outside, right? And it's that tension of making the strange familiar and the familiar strange that can give one the sort of insights to better understand the world. So um, I guess one could say that I was using my otherness. Um, I had the privilege to use my otherness and also some protection because this wasn't going to be the world in which I sought approval. Um, my goal uh, was to understand the world and not to, you know, make a ton of money in this world. <laughs> yeah, I completely understand that because I, I feel like we've all been in that situation as minorities, you know, having to sort of navigate, the, I guess, like the the main culture of, of whatever sort of industry you're in to sort of figure out how you can survive and get ahead, how to, how to sort of stay above water so you can also be visible to everyone that's around you and not sort of fall by the wayside, not, not sort of drift away. There, there's a really sort of, and and there's this really kind of crazy story. I think I might've told you all already where in a sense, the, um, on wall street, one's otherness can also be strategically used by the institution. And, you know, for me, when I worked on wall street, 
even though I worked in a financial institution in a sort of, you know, a global investment bank, my role in, in the institution was what they call an internal management consultant. And I was sort of an analyst. So in the front office, but the lowest rung of it. But, you know, one of the projects I was assigned on at, at during the sort of end of my tenure there was actually turned out to be a hatchet job, right? It actually turned out that they wanted an internal management consultant to come in and analyzed why a particular department called account services, which serviced accounts in the back office, sort of needed to be downsized and restructured. And it was pretty obvious to me that that my ethnographic skills, right, people skills, as well as the various sort of categorizations as an other in which I, you know, navigate around would be mobilized to interview these folks, get close to them, do a study that then would be used uh, to potentially justify their downsizing. And so this was an insight that I got from, you know, having to do this, do this project. And, and so I spent multiple weeks not sleeping, fretting about how I was going to resist, you know, this hatchet job. And I, I, I'm happy to say that I did. <laughs> um, I ended up creating an Excel spreadsheet that demonstrated the, the sort of not only the importance of people's work, but there was more than enough work for all the people that were there. So I wasn't going to be responsible for any firing on my temp job. (laughs) (laughs) And I should say that I was given this project at a moment when all of us in the internal management consulting group lost our jobs. So losing my job on Wall Street was actually what gave me insight into the extent to which job insecurity and job precarity and an expiration date to one's own job, right? The I'll be gone, Mm -hmm. you'll be gone, really shapes the larger institutional culture of Wall Street. Most folks think they're just got to cram as many deal-making and transactions as they can the short term because they're not going to be there in the future. And they're certainly not going to be there to as stewards. They're certainly not going to be there to see if their advice or their deals actually got implemented in a way that was stable. Stability was not, nor employment, was not in the forefront or in the back of their concern, right? So this sort of gave me window into the kinds of ethos and the kinds of values that they were being uh, socialized into. So essentially, it's like a now, here now culture that if I don't do it today, I may not be there tomorrow to do it. So I might as well do it today. That's right. That's right. So many Wall Streeters also experience incredible job uh, precarity, but they're highly compensated. They are elite, uh, you know, privileged workers from very privileged backgrounds. And so they experience precarity in a very different way than most Americans. They experience precarity oftentimes in a way as creating men of metal, as, as forging strength, precisely because they're usually able to land in a different position both within finance as well as outside finance, because folks in other companies are searching for folks in finance because finance is the more powerful idea, right? So you want folks who have worked in finance to come and work at your manufacturing corporation. You want folks who have worked in finance to come and work in your credit card company or at Uber or et cetera, et cetera, because financial values and financial norms and financial knowledge is so highly privileged. So yes, precarity, but yet given their relative privilege, they experience precarity quite differently and they're highly compensated. So they're cushioned for their insecurity. It almost seems like they have this mentality that they're untouchable and that they can do anything because their value is so high 
that they would be able to find the next big thing so quickly. Chandi, I, I was, it's, it's actually an amazing statement. You know, at first I'm like, oh wait, they're untouchable. That's kind of shocking. And then you think, wait, that might've actually hit the nail on the head. I mean, if we think about the Wall Street bailout, here are folks, uh, you know, in the wake of 2008, the largest federal bailout in the history of the United States. And yet these are the folks that drove the economy off the cliff. And yet they garnered bailout precisely because upper middle class retirement savings was in their um, in their bandwagon. So, but precisely by bailing them out on the order of trillions of dollars wholesale without strings attached means that we actually bailed out the larger institutional culture and the larger mindset. So it's not surprising that they can learn that they're untouchable. Oh, I can actually wreck the economy and still come out after, you know, maybe a dip in a year or two. And, you know, I mean, come out very well, right? And um, I think we've sort of seen that um, with the pandemic too, that it's precisely the wealthy and the skyrocketing uh, stock and financial markets that have really uh, heightened and intensified their wealth over the course of the pandemic. I mean, I'm wondering, it seems like being so short-sighted in terms of their goals, right? Short-term goals. How does that affect their work? I'm sure that that I mean, that's kind of a, a risky way of looking at finance, looking at, you know, how you're handling other people's money. So the, I, yes, absolutely. So I, I think that's exactly right. This is a very risky proposition. At the same time, what sort of um, many folks who are in finance, especially folks who are in corporate finance or who work in private equity, which is that it's in finance, but this is, is a separate industry, an intersecting industry is that their goal is to constantly buy and sell companies, right? And so the point isn't necessarily to create stable employment or necessarily create stable positions, but rather it's about how can I um, shape this company and tell this company's story to tell this, the latest economic, to be in economic fashion, so to speak, and then sell it off to the next bidder. So finance often plays a game of hot potato. And, and for individual uh, financiers, as well as these institutions, as well as these groups, their pay, their compensation is judged yearly based on all the companies they're able to sell, not based on does the company do well five years from now. So yeah, that's sort of, it's not necessarily good for stakeholders but it's fairly good for people that are investors, you know, making money. That's absolutely right. So, you know, corporations, uh, U.S. corporations in for most of the 20th century, they thought of themselves as long-term social institutions beholden to multiple stakeholders of which shareholders were just one. And the mindset, the overall cultural value right today is that none of the other stakeholders are important, only investors and shareholders. And it's actually based on a myth. It's actually based on the myth that shareholders actually own the company and therefore they have the right to the entirety of it and can do whatever they want with it. And, you know, I think it's so important to sort of yell from the rooftops. No, shareholders actually don't own the company. They own shares. They, They only own shares, not the entirety of everything. But there's that slippage there. So one sort of speaks about, gosh, you know, it's really sort of an alternative fact right, that experts promulgate 
that it, that is really problematic and that has really that has helped to shape uh, some of the misrecognition and misunderstanding of the financial world and its impact. So I feel like I mean, as an everyday person, I most people don't have this understanding of of how you know the financial sector works, how Wall Street works, how any of it actually functions. And I think that that that's something that we we should have a better understanding of because it does affect us. I mean, even if it's a small amount, right? Even if it's just, you know, my retirement fund, that's one thing. But it, it, it's still risky behavior on their part that's affecting us. But we don't really, we seem to, I don't want to say we don't care, but we, we don't really think about it. It's sort of removed from, from our everyday understanding. And also that, you know, for, for many financiers, they actually don't shoulder the risk themselves. Right. They sell it off to the next buyer. And so they, in a sense, are outsourcing risk to others, right? Outsourcing risk to the system, outsourcing risk to the stakeholders who um, are not large institutional investors. So, you know, there's, you know, already um, an equal play, unequal playing field there. But, you know, back to what you're saying about why, why don't uh, most everyday folks, most Americans understand finance and and financial jargon. And, you know, I would actually say that, well, I would actually also argue that most financiers, most bankers, most traders don't understand finance. And meaning that they themselves buy into a particular fiction of what finance is. So, you know, an analogy that just sort of, you know, popped into my head is sort of the housing market. Most Americans are socialized into a fiction of the housing market. They think that um, the housing market is fair and free. They think that most people can buy a house wherever they want. They think that segregation happens because um, people just happen to choose uh, a house based on their friends, or they just, you know, happen to want to live in a place where people are also like them. But anybody can choose and the sort of, you know, um, the houses, housing dots sort of fall where they may. So they're not taught, they're not socialized into understanding that the housing market has been historically framed out of race and, and segregation, right? right? <laughs> and that, that loans and that space has been sort of prefigured and conditioned by right. um, particular racial hierarchies, et cetera, et cetera. So, so just as with housing markets, the same with financial markets. I think that even folks who are in it, who are practicing finance, buy into a particular fiction of, for example, shareholder value primacy, that they then enact into practice that actually might actually serve them, but really does an injustice right, um, to most Americans because the work of what short-term shareholder value has done, I think, has actually increased socioeconomic uh, inequality and insecurity. Why do you think they buy into this fiction? Is it just because it's easier? It's convenient? I I do think that it's actually a, it's a more convenient, so, you know, so there's a whole history to this and particular financial economists and 
uh, folks in business school, as well as financiers themselves who really wanted to advocate for why financial markets should really be invested in, why people's money should be outsourced to finance. So, you know, there, there's a key marketing strategy here in terms of why finance actually should be so important to corporations. They didn't want to be ignored as just one part of the sort of larger stakeholder model. They wanted to be the ones. They, they, all of the largesse and all of the rewards and the benefits of the corporation should cohere to shareholders. And financiers had a lot at stake in making that claim, right, in advocating for that narrative because it, it empowered them as advisors to shareholders, right, and advisors to shareholders who would then invest in the markets. It really sort of empowered um, not only share, large shareholders, but the, those who gave advice to shareholders. So, but in many ways, it was actually quite a sort of, it, it is a simplifying logic, right? That's much easier to package. And that is that corporations belong to shareholders. It's in sort of easy one-to-one match and therefore shareholders should do, should have, you know, their way with corporations. And it was a way that you rendered invisible labor. You rendered invisible employees. You rendered invisible communities, Communities don't matter if only shareholders are primary and not only primary, but singular, not only singular, but only. (laughs) Um, It really does privilege not only investors, but those who speak in the name of investors. You know, you you've talked about how Wall Street is such a it's almost like such a pressure point. So when you were you were that analyst, did you feel like you had to? overperform? Did you feel included? So the, you know, again, with the um, inclusion, I, um, I didn't necessarily feel included nor, nor, nor hyper excluded, right? So in part, it was the sort of status of being both sort of insider and outsider at the same time, but also that I wasn't, you know, casting my my, my health or my well-being on being bountifully and well judged by Wall Streeters. So the goals are unusual for me, right? It would be different if I really needed to make it on Wall Street and and, and my livelihood depended upon them sort of, you know, taking me in and being included, et cetera, et cetera. But my livelihood in a sense was what is the best way to critically understand these folks? <laughs> Which, which is sort of an odd way to judge what my performance would be. But having said that, Wall Street is a pressure cooker, right? Wall Street is a pressure cooker because especially those who are lower down the hierarchy. And when I, when I say that, I still mean privileged workers, right? I still mean the graduates of elite universities who go in and, and work in the front office. I'm not, in this story, I'm not talking about the folks who are in the back office workers in account services who are doing check processing. So in this world, the senior banker, the senior investment banker is in, in a sense the lord, and it's usually a he, it's usually a upper middle class a white dude. And their time frame, their schedule is what shapes everybody else's schedule in that department. So what I mean by that is if the managing director wants something on his desk by tomorrow morning and he's just given you comments at 6 or 7 p.m. that night, then you need to turn around those comments by working all night so they can be at his desk by 8 a.m. Now, the managing director gets to go home at 6 p.m. and come back in at 8, 9 p.m. But to have that turnaround time 
an analyst has to do that work. An associate has to do that work. And so that, you know, I call this in, in my book, the white collar sweatshop, right? <laughs> it's a white collar <laughs> because it is privileged. It is, it is anchored to a privileged person's time. And, and the structure of their day. Now, part of what also hooks this is the culture of Wall Street. Wall Street really prides itself on being real time. Again, this is a cultural construct. Uh, finance, part of finance's cultural identity is being simultaneous with the market. I'm real time. I'm fast. I'm speedy. I outperform everything. Things can be done here in an instant. We work faster here than anywhere else on the planet. But part of that depends upon 110-hour weeks from Wall Street analysts. Yes, there was the pressure, <laughs> but but again, I could I could uh, you know uh, disentangle my identity and my self worth uh, from from a little bit of that, right? Because I want I wanted to sort of understand this world. So so you did get some sleep. Good good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you guys they they seem to get less sleep than than we do. It's the same situation, honestly. It's like, oh, just, you know, here's the markups, go do this and have it on my desk in the morning. Same thing. Yeah. And this has really come to a head during COVID. So, you know, there was a big sort of ruckus a few months ago because Goldman Sachs analysts put together a, a PowerPoint presentation and their entire power, and then they sort of let it go viral online. And this PowerPoint presentation was basically saying, that they started off, and, and this is 2020, right? They started off this job thinking they had made it in Manhattan. And by the end of six to nine months, uh, many of them were having mental health crises and breakdowns, had relationship trouble, had been working 100 plus hour weeks, was not able to talk to or hang out with any friends. And yes, this was in the course of a pandemic also, but these are some of the things they experienced. And part of the really unusual and yet expected reason why this kind of work got so intensified during COVID is that managing directors actually didn't have to spend as much time traveling, going into the office, transitioning from client meetings, right, and management presentations. They were at home making phone calls, promising uh, future deals and transactions. And so they actually had a lot of deals coming through virtually that they would expect the analysts to mobilize and do the grunt work in real time. So instead of actually trap, and now also I should add that most of these male managing directors were not necessarily doing childcare. They were not doing the re reproductive labor. They had essential workers and including a wife, <laughs> um, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a assuming a heteronormative situation here, doing a lot of that reproductive labor and care work. So you have this intensification of phone calls and promises for uh, pitch books and deals and research that they were promising their clients. And so the analyst did not even get the sort of privileges of getting to hang out with other analysts did not get any of the um, seductions of dinner on the firm or a cocktail hour. But again, an intensification of manage managing directors making calls then ended up on their uh, laptops as much more work that they had to finish in real time. Before, they would be working all the time, but at least they could rant and vent to their fellow analysts going out for drinks and going out for dinners. But now it's just work and that's right. That's right. And before they could network, they could network with elite men. 
they the, they could be taken under the wing. They could go and play golf on Pebble, Pebble Beach. They could hang out at fancy New York bars, right? That was part and parcel of getting put on bigger deals. That was part and parcel of networking, not only within investment banks, but across hedge funds and private equity. There was a lot of jumping, for example, today between working at Goldman Sachs, working at a private equity firm, working at a hedge fund. All this is possible because of the networking, right? And also because former bankers go and um, move into private equity or former private equity people go and move in to start their hedge funds, et cetera, et cetera. They mobilize their networks. And so to the extent that for this moment of time, folks were shut out from that. Now, having said that, one of the ways, one of the reasons why many investment banks actually resist remote work is precisely because of the importance of this kind of networking. This kind of networking engenders deal making. The extent to which fraternal, elite fraternal, the extent to which elite fraternal networks are central to the making and the success of financial markets, the making and the success of financial deal making cannot be underestimated. Um, markets are not a cultural autonomous natural entities. They're made and produced through these constructs and through these networks and through these relationships. And they're highly exclusive. Karen, you obviously are super passionate about this topic. And what is one thing that you wish you didn't learn? One thing I wish I didn't learn was how invested consciously or unconsciously, strategically or unstrategically, right, in the financial system, right? So the ways in which, for example, the stock markets and investment shapes the livelihoods and the ability to be upwardly mobile for most Americans. And so in a sense, it really hinders us from trying to reform or restructure the financial system because our very livelihoods, our very retirements, our very savings are caught up in the stock market appreciating. Right. So in a sense, we're all socialized into or I should say upper middle class and middle class Americans are socialized into wanting the stock market to rise. And yet wanting the stock market to rise falls prey to the sort of larger logic of shareholder value primacy. That is the logic that has been used to restructure and undermine the stability of U.S. corporations, which has actually increased job precarity, job insecurity, mass unemployment. So unfortunately, the ways in which the financial system has been structured is that there's often a zero-sum game between shareholder value primacy, short-term shareholder value, and employment uh, stable employment with benefits. And oftentimes the investments and the monies and, and the sort of larger infrastructure that has to go into employment to create that stability, much of that has been downsized and redistributed upward to create more dividends for shareholders to, to show that these institutions are nimble enough to grant to, um, to redistribute that wealth to the shareholders. So I guess part of what I didn't, uh, you know, is that we're, we're all in the matrix, I guess. <laughs> um, and the, the financial system is really, um, 
inserted itself into so many parts of our lives that it would be very difficult to disentangle. And I think certainly the one of the largest or one of the central examples of that is the bailout that happened in the wake of 2008. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we actually made, and and this is, you know, you know what I actually wish I could have studied more, researched more. Um, one of the biggest mistakes, you know, I think we made was not bailing out homeowners. And we attempted to, but again, through financial institutions, we tried to bail out homeowners through financial institutions as if Wells Fargo was actually not going to claim bailout for itself. Again, right. when well, again with shareholder value primacy, if Wells Fargo gets bailed out, they re- redistribute upwards to shareholders, to investors, to executives who are also investors. They are not redistributing down to homeowners. And that's a logic that's very different than what a corporation used to be. If you had a stakeholder model, at least other folks had a seat at the table, even though it was unequal. But to have wholesale bailouts simply redistribute upward is certainly part of the problem. So um, part of what I wished I had studied more was what would have happened had we bailed out homeowners, bailed out the folks who for whom really felt the brunt, right? The foreclosed homeowners who really felt the brunt of the 2008 crisis, who lost their livelihoods. And especially for foreclosed Americans, um, where there was a much uh, larger percentage of BIPOC communities were part of those, or large percentage of those foreclosed um, Americans. They have been experiencing downward mobility ever since. Also, not bailing out the homeowners also created really reactionary social movements. It was precisely in the wake of 2008 that the Tea Party burgeon and somehow the critique and the blame against Wall Street transmogrified. It became a sort of critique and blame of the marginalized and immigrants. And so you had this sort of, you know, wait, how did this out-of-body blame shape-shifting happened, right? Again, a misrecognition of those, in a sense, who are largely responsible for larger socioeconomic uh, instability and decline were, were also the ones who got left off the hook and bailed out. So the critique that engendered some of these movements was correct in the sense of being pointed towards this wholesale bailout. The aftermath and the sort of the extent to which alternative facts and misrecognition really took over is that it became reactionary against the marginalized and the sort of larger American practice of scapegoating that then also left elite finance off the hook. Unfortunately, it's like the classic victim blaming scenario. That's right. So we had the, I mean, obviously 2008 recession, but I mean, obviously last year, still now, it's not really over, but COVID. And it seems as though in terms of stock market, things actually didn't, actually did fairly well instead of, you know, what you would think. I mean, my assumption would be that things wouldn't be good, but, you know, I I mean, I looked at my statements (laughs) for you know, 401k and, and 457 Bay. And I'm like, this is, this is interesting. It's kind of strange. So I'm just, my question is how during a pandemic, right, where it's affecting everyone, even financially, um, how's the stock market actually um, 
doing fairly well? Yeah, so that, that's a really great question. And so, and, and this is, is precisely what I was, you know, talking about when, you know, during um, a few years post 2008, the wealthy were doing well, as well as those who had invested in the stock market, just like after the throes of March and April 2020, the stock market re-rose from the ashes. Now, one cannot underestimate the extent to which federal subsidy helps to make this possible. So Treasury kicks in, the Federal Reserve kicks in, low interest rates kicks in. In a sense, the Federal Reserve promises to underwrite, to put more money into the bond markets, to buy up billions of dollars worth of uh, securities to shore up the markets. So one, this is certainly a, the ways in which um, to talk, talk about sort of privatized gains and socialized losses, right? That the federal government is all up in Wall Street's business, despite the fact um, that one of its reigning mantras is the free market. There's nothing free about it, right? It is de- absolutely dependent upon subsidy. But this is what I mean is that the relatively privileged in the U.S. for whom their retirement accounts and their savings are in the stock market are bolstered by the very machine <laughs> in which we critique. It's a, it's a tough one in terms of, well, how do we actually create a world in which there's more socioeconomic equality when, in fact, that our, our savings and our retirement is part of, this, of, of the larger financial system? And, 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 and I should also say that the financial system doesn't have to run this way. It could decide that short-termism isn't the measure by which corporations should be judged. It could decide that employment is now a constituent stakeholder. So again, these are cultural decisions. These are cultural decisions about who is a corporation for. And we made the cultural decision in the mid-20th century, at least we're attempting to, the corporation is for multiple stakeholders. Now, we then changed and made the decision in the 1980s and 1990s that a corporation is only for investors, right? That's a radical shift. And that shift is a key reason for a lot of the socioeconomic inequality and corporate governance and decision making in this past 30 or 40 years. We could, if we change these shifts, then one could actually argue that, you know, the financial markets don't have to be a certain way, right? So I don't want to be over-deterministic at the same time as I'm seeming quite pessimistic. (laughs) In terms of, so obviously, you know, I, I have retirement paying into 401k and all these things, but plenty of people don't. And Obviously, the money I make from that goes up, it goes down, but it'll honestly, it, it's for the most part, it, it evens out and it stays steady. But for the people who aren't invested, how, because we're not following that, that stakeholder model in terms of stock market and finance, that how basically is there, how the question is, how can they, I how can we solve this problem, basically, where we have people, this, this inequality, right? We can't solve it with the current model that we have. That's not, that's not possible because no matter what, we still have the, the shareholder model, right? Where their point is that they're generating wealth. They're, they're making most of the money. 
So how do, I mean, is there any chance of evening that out? Is there any way that the model can change? Do you see it changing in the future? No, that's, that's, that's a great point. So, you know, we're, yes. Yeah, so, so on the one hand, we're, we're part of a catch 22, right? We're invested in the stock market, the stock market. Um, we empower it by, by, in a sense, putting more of our money into the stock market. Um, the stock market in the contemporary moment, it espouses and it empowers a very sort of exclusive and short term and a mortgaging the future kind of practice um, when it comes to corporations and when it comes to the environment and when it comes to um, employment, labor, et cetera. So, you know, that's the catch 22. At the same time, you know, one could say the stock market would not be anywhere near, or I should broaden and say the financial markets would not be anywhere near where it is today without without incredible federal subsidy. So the financial markets would have imploded, would have imploded in 2008. The financial markets um, would have largely imploded in 2020. And yet the federal government comes in and rescues it. And so we have the wherewithal, right? So that's not a great example for my point, but in the sense that the fact that we can actually rescue this means that we can rescue other things. So, you know, so, so I, I guess you could take an optimistic light to that point. The other point, and I think, you know, this, this point is actually pessimistic, but a study came out last year on the Washington Post by um, Long and Van Dam that actually showed that wealth inequality between black and white has been the same in the past 70 years. In a sense, there has been no progress from the 1950s and 60s until today. Wow. And so the, the sort of inequality between black and white has actually stayed stable from before the civil rights movement to now. And the what's so horrifying and tragic about that is that we're now at a place where folks can sort of see this really compelling study, and yet we're also in a place where most Americans are experiencing relative precarity and downward mobility. And so most Americans are not in the mind space where they're actually understanding that the marginalized are actually doing worse than the downwardly mobile. And especially if you're downwardly mobile for the first time, especially when the American dream has long worked for you and yet it newly doesn't work, right? Right. Especially when finance and financialization is not necessarily the culprit, but other other minoritized communities. So right, exactly. we're in this we're, so you know this really formulates a conundrum for larger federal action. Because many folks actually misrecognize where the sources of their problems are, right? There's sort of the fact that, you know, most Americans are experiencing precarity and there's mainstream resentment does not bode well for solving these trenchant, unequal problems. And yet one can actually, uh, the government is actually really crucial because we would have not had a very solid American middle class that really grew up and came to the fore in the mid 20th century without the GI Bill. And the sort of biggest component of the GI Bill after World War II was actually subsidized mortgages for white men. It was marketed for all GIs, but it was only given to, yeah. to white dudes. And keep in mind, these white dudes had zero collateral. It was a federal program that actually subsidized and underwrote mortgages, spread them out over 30 years, and made them very affordable and very stable. So 
without any collateral. So this made possible the growth of the middle class. Those things have historically been the only things that have actually created these major unequal track jumps. We assume it's just going to be a little here, a little there. Somebody should just sort of take a self-help class. No, it was a major structural investment. And again, we're fed the origin myths. No, it wasn't a major structural investment that created the American middle class. It was, you know, the self-made man and meritocracy and meritocratic individualism. It was just the market being free. And because we're sold that narrative and we actually can't see the ways in which those possibilities have actually been subsidized and actually constructed, right, through highly subsidized massive investments for particular folks. When we need it now, we can't draw from it because the cultural tracks of that historical help has been erased. People presume that that help was never given. It was just meritocratic individualism. It was just the free markets. No, it was a highly subsidized market for particular categories and highly orchestrated. But if we don't tell that and people survive off the fiction of a no cultural, you know, work is being done here, then they will continue to reproduce the self-made man fiction and render less possible the importance of, again, more investment to um, address issues of heightened inequality. This is what we're attempting to do with this podcast is to talk about issues that people don't generally want to talk about. And in this case, we are talking about race just like the rest of America is, but you're talking about it in the sense that is really important for us to know that in the last 70 years, because we're under the impression that things have changed. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like, even for me, I don't know anything other than middle-class suburbs investing money that I don't know anything other than that, but I do have family who is not in my particular situation and they, they're understood. They don't have a, a full understanding of it, but then I also don't have a full understanding of. So in, in my opinion, when it comes to them, like, well, how come you can't do better? How come you can't invest? How come you can't look forward to the future in terms of, you know, having a safety net for, for money when you get older, but they, they can't, there's no, it's not available <laughs> in the same way that it was available for me or, you know, other people. And it starts from the beginning. It's not just education, like in terms of what college you go to or if you go to college. And it actually used to not even be about college. There's plenty of white guys who did not go to college and they had great jobs and they had this and they had that. It's, it, there's way more than just the, I guess, what we've been told or what we've been taught when it comes to these things and inequality. That's, that was really well put there, Zoe. I had a second wind. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, if you were to suddenly leave academia, I mean, you are this badass, awesome professor. Would you ever go back to Wall Street? No way. <laughs> <laughs> Who would want to put themselves through that again? Well, from what you've been saying, Karen, it's like a win-win situation, right? You mess up, you're still going to find a better job where people are still going to treat you like you're 
a god because you come from the finance world. So she's also criticized the finance world. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It it one is you know um, the many folks in finance really espouse the um, the saying that they are the smartest guys in the room. Right. And oftentimes when you actually ask folks in finance, why do you do what you're doing? They'll say, because I get to be in a room with the smartest guys in the room. I get to be surrounded by smart people all day. That's oftentimes what they'll actually say. Now, how sort of uh, the financial world fits with one if one is actually not at the upper echelon of the hierarchy, i.e. a managing director, is experienced quite, quite differently because it is, despite all of the sort of proclamations about it being a place where we don't carry. We don't care about invidious distinctions. We just care about how much money you can make, and therefore, all these other sort of antediluvian race, sex, gender uh, categories are thrown out the window because we don't care what you look like. We just care the fact that you make a lot of money for us. And so, this is again a reigning fiction that renders invisible the ways in which it's precisely often these categories that actually gets you on particular deals that actually then assuages and ameliorates your upward mobility. So, but folks will use different kinds of words. Folks will say, I'm a Dartmouth grad and I put a Dartmouth guy on my team. Well, already, you're already gonna reproduce many invidious distinctions. (laughs) (laughs) with that saying. And yet, just like with most other workplaces, the the ways in which inequality get reproduced and the ways in which deal making gets done is not often explicitly understood. They oftentimes will step back and say, well, I was just doing the work of the market. They don't always have that. Now, one could argue that the fish are always the last to see the water. So you can ask, you know, me about academia or you guys about all the things you do. And we will have when when you're in it, it's it's hard to step outside of it. And part of that is, you know, part of the challenge of being in anthropology is constantly trying to sort of unpack that taken for grantedness. So instead of saying, oh, I hired a Dartmouth guy put in my team and looking at the ways in which that those networks are precisely what shapes financial deal making, they'll just say, oh, the market works well. One question that, is there something that we should have asked you, Karen, that we didn't? <laughs> but here's one thing. And, you know, and I think, you know, the part where I was talking about, you know, why homeowners should have been bailed out. And, you know, I think part of the myth that stays with us today is the myth of the irresponsible debtor, the myth of the person with the part-time job who bought a Mac mansion. So this fiction of the myth of the irresponsible debtor is, is currency on Wall Street. Because what it does is it takes the heat away from the ways in which Wall Street institutions really orchestrated and really pushed and really influenced and really galvanized um, and helped to structure and really wanted as many subprime loans being made as possible. Because the financial instruments and the investments that were actually being created on those loans were paying really, really high rates precisely because the loans were so predatory and precisely because the people really were paying so well. 
Wall Street made a lot of money because the predation worked. People kept paying higher and higher and higher mortgages as the arms went up, as the rates went up, as the balloons went up. So it is actually a story of really responsible people who were paying as much as they could before they went bankrupt, and a story of irresponsible predatory loans that actually rendered them unable to pay. They weren't risky before; they were made risky. So I really want folks to. Really, sort of question some of the sort of taken for granted myths and the ways in which that elides responsibility from folks like Wall Street, who、um, helped to structure and orchestrate and pushed and and actually gave rewards for mortgage originators to make as many subprime loans as possible. In, in fact,、um, they were given quotas to reach, and if they reached more subprime loans, they would actually get bonuses. This was a top down desire. This was a top down. Machine here, and yes, of course, there's irresponsible debtors all over the place, but some of them are subsidized, <laughs> and、uh, certainly, especially Wall Street. Thing it's it seems like、uh, we're talking about irresponsible debtors. The thought is, these people have mortgages that I mean, they really couldn't afford to pay these these mortgages. They were so extreme, right? The interest rates are so high. I mean, how do People, I mean, I guess at the time, people really didn't have an understanding of the fact that you really can't afford this house. Yes, and so you know, the so the mortgage originators, for example, had a particular sort of set of convincing tools, and one of the convincing tools was that when this, by the time the arm balloons and the arm goes up, you won't actually have to pay this mortgage because you will just sell the house. The housing market always goes up. So th- that narrative really was deployed to all, all to all manners of ends. Now, the other piece are the fact that the sort of terms of the loans were not always disclosed, right? So that piece is something that I think most folks aren't. You know, they're sort of assuming, yes, this is just a regular thirty-year、uh, mortgage with a、uh, stable rate loan. And you know, the the ways in which particular arms and particular balloons. Were actually structured into this.、Um, many of these kinds of differentiations; these were not vanilla mortgages, right? To sort of use、uh, Wall Street's terms, but they were very precisely framed and precisely、um, designed、uh, attract folks. And yet, many of the ways in which they would later balloon was not explained well. So then, in that case, it seems as though I mean, did they have any idea that things were just going to blow up the way they did? They're sort of like, I mean, risky way of doing things, right? The short-sightedness of of how financial institutions function. Did they have any idea that this was coming? Did they see it coming? Did they not care, or did they really just not even look that far ahead? I think so. I think that's a really great question. One more thing on the previous point, though, is that by two thousand seven, most people who are sold a subprime loan would have qualified for prime. So that's a really important statistic to sort of understand is that that you know increasingly the people who are sold a subprime loan you know by two thousand seven would have qualified for prime, and yet many of these are first time homeowners right home buyers I should say and so they're taught that this is the way the process works and this is the only loan you can have and they weren't even shown a prime loan but they would have qualified it based on their credit score. So again, it's about manuf- selling a particular loan profile, and in so doing, producing risk. 
shifting a borrower from not so risky to risky and taking advantage of of their desire to own a home for the first time, right? So there's a lot of that going on. In terms of Wall Street knowing or not knowing, I think they were realizing they were riding the wave. And so, you know, that's, you know, the sort of example of Goldman Sachs already selling all of their uh, collateralized mortgage obligations or their investments based on subprime loans and yet still telling clients to buy them. Right. So they had a sense that this market was imploding. But uh, but here's a really instructive tidbit. When the subprime loan blew up the economy, subprime loan uh, engendered crisis or the subprime manufactured crisis, I should say, blew up the social economy. The Wall Street financiers who helped to design and structure this thing called a subprime loan. Remember, these are financial instruments designed by Wall Street institutions and all their various permutations. Those who helped to design subprime got a job pretty quickly. They weren't reviled, right? In fact, they were actually heralded for creating a billion dollar market out of nothing. They were actually heralded and lauded for their innovation. They were heralded and lauded for actually being able to produce and make a market um, and at the speed at which it was taken up. So in a sense, Wall Street turns the narrative on its head and say, we need to be credited with innovation. We need to be credited for our smartness, for actually being able to create this kind of market out of nothing. So they're not blamed for the failure precisely because, again, these are the smartest guys in the room. And free markets need courageous innovators. And sometimes if you have irresponsible debtors, that can all kind of, you know, go to pot. But we still get to be meritocratic individuals. Okay, I guess, can we say that deregulation has led to this particular culture of Wall Street? Absolutely, right? Deregulation and re-regulation for finance. So part of how this deregulation has worked is, you know, a, a really telling example is AIG, which is an insurance company. And, you know, before deregulation, AIG could not have sold many of these Wall Street instruments that actually brought it down. So what brought down AIG was, in a sense, they had one financial derivatives wing that was selling credit default swaps. And basically, credit default swaps was actually insurance to say that these big firms weren't going to go bankrupt, even in the wake of subprime. Of course, many of them did. Meanwhile, they're selling insurance to the average Joe. Right, because AIG is an insurance company. They're selling annuities. They're selling insurance. They're selling life insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one financial derivatives wing can bring down the entirety of AIG, and yet because they're an insurance company, they commanded a bailout because they could go to the administration and say, "If you don't bail me out, millions of claim owners will not be able to." have life insurance. And so again, the, the, the strategy of using the average Joe to bail out what was happening with the small financial derivatives wing. Had the Glass-Steagall Act not been dismantled, you actually could not have had the same company do both financial derivatives and credit default swaps and insurance to the average Joe. That would have actually been separated. You couldn't have taken money from one that's stable and use it to subsidize (laughs) the other. Double dipping. Right.
Yeah. I mean, we didn't even talk about like, you know, the whole Me Too movement in, in terms of Wall Street. That's a whole nother, it's a whole nother thing. Yeah. But, but that, I mean, be like a whole nother. <laughs> it's interesting because like rape culture seems to be similar to how we treat Wall Street people, how they're allowed to deflect their fault and flaws away. And then it's on the victim. And it's like, why did the victim do this? If the victim didn't do this, they would have been fine. So it's, I, I see a lot of those similarities. Yeah, no, that's, that's an important observation. I mean, the, the, the ways in which sort of Wall Street has been able to operate with Teflon, um, with a, um, with a really sort of unassailable assumed meritocracy, despite the fact that they drove the economy off a cliff, yeah. is really astounding. How could they maintain the fiction of smartness when they failed so miserably? <laughs> and certainly, the again, the sort of importance of finance in the larger economy, um, their privileged backgrounds, the particular elite institutions, the networks, um, the ways in which they've all been trained at Harvard and Princeton, right? All of these things come to the fore in terms of creating this larger halo effect. And propaganda too, probably, right? Like how it's portrayed in the media. That's right. Yeah. So even though Wall Street, is, Wall Street is now highly scrutinized, and in the wake of, you know, Occupy, Occupy Wall Street, different kinds of larger sort of social and economic critics and observers over the past uh, 12, 13 years, still, right, the, um, the sort of larger assumption of smartness has not gone away. And the, the, the role, right, the role they play in the larger social economy is still respected um, in terms of innovation, in terms of the importance of uh, finance, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. What a discussion. <laughs> well, Karen, this was a very enlightening conversation. Um, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Oh, thanks was... so much, Chandi and Zoe. It was a pleasure talking to you both. Wall Street is really vast and diverse and not completely untrue from what we see in the media. So we have an idea of where all of this aggression and all of this like yeah. cutthroat mentality comes from. I mean, it's also like the high turnover rate, right? Like you may not be in this job for a very long time at this or this particular company, this particular position for a very long time. It's about Getting your money and getting out. Yeah. Getting your money as soon as you can, making the money. Like that quick turnover rate is what Wall Street is used to. And yeah. that's what it also expects. So they want you to produce the largest number of profits or deliverables in a short amount of time because they don't know when that person is going to be gone. Right. I mean, it's the thing. It affects it. It's it's on a personal level of you needing to do that for yourself. It's on the company's level, right? In terms of making money. So, I mean, that that does have a direct correlation to 
the way it functions when it trickles down to everyday people. You know, I mean, that does explain why the events that led to the economic recession happened. I mean, it's about profit. And then there's no real thought. You know, there's no thought about what happens afterwards, right? It's sort of just about the here and the now. And we're not really worried about the future. We're not worried about how it affects the future. I think also that's why the personal life or the after work life relates to the hedonistic lifestyle or in the moment kind of lifestyle that Wall Street generates that, you know, you need to have fun right now. I mean, the interesting thing about it is, is that we're investing, right? Our our money into our 401ks and, and stocks and bonds and everything. But we're thinking about investing for the future, not about right now, but they're worried about the right now. So that's actually really interesting if you think about it, right? Because, yeah, I mean, we're, we're focused on saving for, for our retirement, right? Our future. And they're not concerned with that. Yep. So it's still like we have this disconnect in terms of what we're looking for, what we're, our focus is, our goal is. And it's put out of our minds, right? Like out of sight, out of mind. We're not worried about it because we are like, well, we'll worry about it down the line when we get there. And yeah, their focus is. It's like within the day, within like hours. Yeah. Those decisions, they might be big on their, you know, large scale, right? Bigger companies, big decisions. But as they trickle down, it still affects you. Oh, yeah, because uh, eventually, if you keep going at that rate, right, you you don't think about the consequences. And yeah, like you said, it does trickle down. But also, how does it trickle down, trickle down to like everyday layperson? I think that was interesting to hear from Karen, that it does affect all aspects of society. It's not just the wealthy or the 1% who get their money managed explicitly, I guess, right? If you have right. stocks, you're going to be affected by Wall Street. You're going to be affected by people who work on Wall Street. I know that I don't think I could work on Wall Street. Um, I don't think I just have that hustle. I don't think I have that aggression. I think I'd be burnt out fairly yeah. quickly. It's a high-stress job. and. I mean, I, it's one of those things like I, I feel like I do work well under pressure. I think that's just that's something that's normal in my field, but it's not the same level of pressure as working on Wall Street. That's a whole different monster. Yeah. And you know, when people say that they work 80 hours, in many cases we are exaggerating it, but I feel like on Wall Street, you really are working like 80 hours. Yeah. Some people aren't exaggerating. <laughs> I mean, I don't work 80 hours. At this point, I probably work maybe an average of between 50 and 60. But I definitely have coworkers who work about 80. Wow. I mean, it's just, it's, it's if you can handle it, you know, but also like, I mean. Yeah. So the incentive to work that many hours is because you're getting compensated, right? Same thing with Wall Street. You're getting compensated. Well, I mean, really- we're not getting compensated anymore. They're making t- 
probably triple what, what you know I would make. I mean, it's I think it's about dedication to your work. So I mean, yeah, there's comp- compensation is important, but you also have to kind of like what you do in order to do that. I really do feel like you do. Yeah. You know, you can't go to work and hate your job every day and deal with a high stress situation. I mean, you can, but is it really beneficial to your health and you? No, I don't think so. I think or, that you have to have some aspects of it that you like. For sure. Also, Otherwise you wouldn't continue doing it. The productivity um, just lessens right over time. If you're not liking the work you do, uh, the burnout rates, there's liking it, there's hating it, and there's unbearable right you have different like levels of how much you can take yeah so it was great talking to karen she was cool she's great she was real right and (laughs) by real i mean she was she's academics do a lot of great work she, she was a little different because she actually worked as an um, analyst. So she had that really interesting perspective. I will. Thanks for listening. As always, check us out on social media. Check out the show notes for more information about Karen Liquidated, the ethnographic. See you next time. See you next time.